Well, thank you very much, Valerie, and thank you all for coming out early in the new year. This is the time of the year when we spend two weeks thinking about our health and then deteriorate back to our normal behavior. So it's a good time to be giving a talk about a disease which is going to be important for all of us in this room and our families and friends, and also has the biggest, I'm going to show you, population impact of anything we deal with in medicine. So my talk is called, Can We Prevent Coronary Artery Disease? Investing in Your Arteries. And I'm going to suggest to you that this idea of investing in your arteries rather than waiting for the problem and trying to turn the clock back is the way forward to get the best outcomes. Now, as we think about our health and our futures, and we think about what we'd like to end up in retirement, this is the sort of uh, image I think most of us would have for our futures. Healthy, active, physically well, and living a long and happy life. But unfortunately, the sad truth is that for many of us, this is not going to be the case. And it's a sobering fact that for approximately half of us in this room, our lives are going to be affected by a cardiovascular event, a stroke, a heart attack, heart failure, and the like, which will occur and cause a clinical problem or kill us in about 50% of us. So instead of waiting for these problems to happen and trying to turn back the clock, my message to you is that we have to start thinking about what we can do much earlier on in the evolution of this disease by investing in our arteries and do something early to get a lifetime risk protection. So let's start by looking at what we've achieved in cardiovascular disease management in the UK in the last 20 or so years. Well, in the 1990s, we were unfortunately top of the league almost in the world in terms of the prevalence and impact of cardiovascular disease. And the government at the time got a bit fed up with being league leaders in that position and decided to have a national program to reduce the cardiovascular consequences of atherosclerosis or arterial disease. And they set some pretty ambitious targets. They suggested that by 1995, we might target a 40% reduction in mortality from cardiovascular disease in the UK. They invested very heavily. The profession got together, lined up with the politicians, and did even better than the targets. And it's really remarkable that we were able to achieve a more than 50% reduction in death from cardiovascular disease over that time period. Now, the sharp-eyed amongst you are probably doing the maths and have already worked out that by uh, 2026, if this were to continue, immortality would be guaranteed for all of us. But unfortunately, that's not going to be the case because despite the fact that we've done really well in tackling cardiovascular disease, it remains the biggest medical problem for us in society. Look at these figures for the United Kingdom. Seven million people in the United Kingdom affected by cardiovascular disease. More than a quarter of all deaths, remember that's all deaths, caused by cardiovascular disease. And one in four premature deaths are caused by cardiovascular disease. And as I'm going to show you, this is an incredibly expensive problem for the National Health Service, particularly relevant in these cash-strapped times. Now, not only is it the biggest killer and the biggest problem for us in medicine, it's also the biggest cause of health inequalities in society. Now, this is a tube map of London, as you can see. I'm not going to try to put you off going east where we are now. But if you look at the life expectancy in the population in London 
in a very advanced city in a very rich country. Look at the incredible discrepancies in life expectancy, even when you're going a few stops east on the tube. In Westminster, where the politicians are, 78 is the average life expectancy for a man. But for every tube stop you go east from Westminster, you lose on average about one year of life expectancy. And almost all of that is driven by an increased risk from cardiovascular disease. Now, we've done very well in cardiovascular disease management over the last 20 or so years, as you've seen. And a lot of this has been achieved by better management of the clinical phase of arterial disease. We start to present with this problem in our 50s and 60s usually, when we start to get angina, heart attack, strokes, heart failure and the like. And by the time we get into trouble with this disease clinically, the underlying process of narrowing of our arteries that you see here is already extremely well established and largely irreversible. So we can deal very well with these problems now. But what we haven't done very well, I'm going to suggest to you, is to try to deal with that long preclinical phase of this disease when atherosclerosis is building up in all of our arteries and beginning to cause the problems that give us so much trouble in later life. Our genes and our environment are conspiring to drive the development of this disease for decades before it becomes recognized as a clinical problem. So quite clearly, we have an opportunity for prevention and not just treatment. And this idea that prevention is better than cure has really been around for more than 500 years. This goes back to the era of Thomas Gresham, in fact. And Erasmus was the first to say that prevention is better than cure. And I don't think there's anyone in this room who would disagree with him. So it's an interesting question to ask, why has it taken us 500 years to really focus on this idea that we have to prevent cardiovascular disease long before it becomes a clinical problem. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are three things that have really made this top of the list now in terms of medical priorities. The first is there's an economic imperative to dealing with heart disease in a different way. I'm going to show you how much this costs, and no medical community can afford now to tackle heart disease in the way which we currently do. Secondly, I'm going to show you evidence that our understanding of this disease has changed dramatically in the last few years, giving us opportunities and justification for earlier intervention. And finally, we live in a digital era, as you know, and the advances in technology are really going to enable and facilitate a very different approach to patient assessment, uh, follow-up, and management. So look at the costs now in the United States of treating cardiovascular disease in the modern era. These are some expenses in billions of US dollars from 2008, from 2010 up to not too far away in the future, 2030. You can see that in the United States, the direct and indirect costs of treating cardiovascular disease will approach $1 trillion a year by 2030, a huge cost which very few societies are going to be able to handle. This is not just a problem for the future, it's already having a huge economic impact at present. If you go into the United States and you buy a car, more than 20% of the cost of your car actually goes directly to paying for the health insurance costs of the people making that car on the production line. 
it's already having a massive impact on the economics of the current era. Now, the second point I want to make is that atherosclerosis or arterial disease doesn't start when you're 50, 60, and 70 and getting into clinical trouble. It starts many years earlier. Now, we know this from old autopsy studies from uh, the Korean War and even earlier, when people who died of non-cardiac-related diseases were unexpectedly found to have atherosclerosis in their coronary circulation at autopsy. And it's remarkable that we ignored that information completely in our thinking and management about this disease. It's taken newer technology like this one here, and I'm going to explain this to you, to show us how alarming this early arterial disease can actually be and how prevalent it is. This is from a study in Cleveland in the United States, at the Cleveland Clinic, actually, where they looked at people who died of non-cardiac-related diseases and whose hearts were being used as the donor hearts in the Cleveland Clinic transplant program. This is not transplant-related coronary disease as a result of treatment. These are the arteries in the hearts that were going into the recipients at the time of transplantation. Take a look on the left here. This is a 32-year-old woman who died in a car accident near Cleveland. Just to orientate you, this is an ultrasound image of her coronary artery, this very important artery on the surface of the heart. Here's the artery. Here's the catheter, this little ultrasound catheter, which has been inserted into the artery to get that image. And you can see that there is not uh, a nice, even uh, surface, an even lumen to the artery uh, you see here, but a very significant narrowing has already occurred by the age of 32. Notice that this narrowing has occurred not by encroaching totally and blocking the artery. The artery is still patent here, but it's remodeled the arterial wall outwards, which is how these abnormalities begin to develop silently over many years. Now, we could speculate how many of us sitting here in this room here today already have arteries that look like this. Actually, you don't have to speculate too much, because if you now look on this right-hand panel, these are the results of more than 300 people in the United States in the modern era dying of non-cardiac-related problems, looking at the prevalence of this arterial disease in their coronary circulations. Notice that in the modern era in the United States, about one in five teenagers already have early atherosclerosis. And rather worryingly for some of us, including myself, by the time you hit 50, 85% of the hearts they examined had multiple atherosclerotic lesions already present in their coronary arteries. So this is the problem that begins years before the clinical manifestations. And we should be asking ourselves, what is it that initiates and drives this long preclinical phase during which this disease is developing? And what can we do to try to prevent the problem that will eventually cause so many uh, clinical problems in later life? So almost certainly you could summarize why we're still in trouble from this disease and it's increasing around the world in this very nice quotation from Alan Gregg, who very perceptively many years ago said, the problem is that the human race has had a long experience and tradition in surviving adversity, but we're now faced with a task for which we have little experience. That's the task of surviving prosperity. And it is the unhealthy lifestyles that we all adopt that underpins much of this evolving pattern of coronary artery disease 
and of the clinical problems that we get. Now, probably everyone in this room knows that we've identified many factors, we call them risk factors, that contribute to the development of this process and are very important and potentially preventable in many cases. In fact, we know a lot about those risk factors and if we pull this together, we can develop a portfolio, if you like, of nine potentially modifiable risk factors that account for pretty well all of the heart attacks that we see in clinical practice. This was a lovely study that was done uh, more than 10 years ago now where they looked at 16,000 people nearly who'd had a heart attack in 52 countries around the world. And they looked at the risk factors that were associated with those heart attacks. You can see that nine risk factors accounted for more than 90% of all the heart attacks, and they included smoking, cholesterol, diabetes, blood pressure, stress, we were talking about this earlier, obesity, poor diet, physical activity, and alcohol intake. Now, those modifiable risk factors kick in and start to cause the problem remarkably early. This is another very interesting and provocative study that came out of Finland this time. This is a study called the Young Finn Study. What they did was to recruit children and to follow them up in terms of their development of arterial disease into adult life. And they looked at their risk factor profiles in this study when they were teenagers between 12 and 18 years. And they used an ultrasound measure to look at the arteries in their necks, the carotid arteries, to document the first signs of developing arterial disease. They were able to show that when they studied these people in their 30s and 40s, the arterial disease that they developed silently was very closely related to the number of cardiovascular risk factors that they had during those early years. So early risk factors, cholesterol, obesity, smoking, inactivity, driving the initiation and development of this early disease. Now, the key question we need to ask ourselves is, does this early disease relate to some of the clinical problems we'd like to prevent in later life? Is all this going on in the first 50 years of our life going to predict whether or not we're likely to have a heart attack or a stroke in later life? And to answer that question, we can turn to another classic population study in medicine. This is probably one of the most famous studies that has ever been undertaken in medicine. It's called the Framingham Heart Study. What happened in the, uh, in the 50s is that they started a study where they recruited pretty well everyone who was living in a small town in New England. And this incredibly important medical study originated in this rather unimpressive house in this small town in the United States. And they've been following the people who lived in this town for the last 50 or so years and collecting incredible evidence about the causes of heart disease in the population. So what they were able to do was to go back to the Framingham Heart Database and ask a very simple question. They said, did your risk factor profile that you had accumulated over those first 50 years relate to your future risk of a clinical event? You can see that in Framingham, if you were a man and you were able to get to 50 with all of your modifiable risk factors that we've been talking about in good shape, your chance of having a stroke or heart attack in the next 30 years was just 5%. On the other hand, if you got to 50 with two or more of your major risk factors at above optimal levels, that risk of having a clinical event rose to a whopping 69%. 
You could argue then that it's all over by the age of 50. The die is already cast in terms of your future cardiovascular risk. What this really does show is how important preventing the damage that is occurring to our arteries in those first 50 years of life are in determining our future cardiovascular outcome. Now, I would love to be able to stand here and show you now a clinical trial that proved that if you did something about it in those first 50 years and lowered your risk factors, you could prevent some of those future cardiovascular events. But of course, no one will ever be able to do a clinical trial like that. It would take many years to take on, and it would never be feasible. It's here, though, that genetics has really given us insights into the opportunities we have for having, from having lower cardiovascular risk factors over our lifetimes. Because we now recognize that there are several genes which conspire to determine what our blood pressure is, what our cholesterol is, how likely we are to be obese, and, and all sorts of other potentially important factors. And we can start to study the outcome of people who have good collections of genes and compare them to people who happen to have inherited bad genes for those cardiovascular risk factors. So this is the only science I'm really going to show you that requires a bit of attention. What happened in this study, published recently, was that 100,000 people were pulled together from clinical trials who'd had more than 14,000 heart attacks and strokes in clinical events. And they looked at the people who had the good genes for cholesterol, for example. Here, the people with the low LDL cholesterol genes, the bad cholesterol being slightly lower because of having inherited good genes for the, your cholesterol. You can see that the amount of cholesterol reduction was really quite modest from having those genes, but it was there over the whole of the patient's lives. That modest reduction in cholesterol resulted in about a 25% reduction in future cardiovascular events, a quarter less events. If we look at the same information for blood pressure, here are the people who were lucky enough to have inherited a good set of genes for blood pressure. Their blood pressure, the systolic blood pressure, the top number, was just three millimeters lower on average than the other people. And yet their cardiovascular risk was also reduced by about 20%. Now, there are some people who were lucky enough to inherit good genes for cholesterol and good genes for blood pressure as well. Those people up here had a 50% reduction in their future risk of cardiovascular events. Very modest reductions in cholesterol and blood pressure, the sort of thing that you could easily achieve by a change in lifestyle, producing a dramatically lower future risk of cardiovascular events. Now, you could put this on a predictive uh, a graph and estimate what would happen in terms of future events if you could get your blood pressure down by just 10 millimeters and your cholesterol down by just one millimole. Again, these are modifications which one could easily achieve without the need for drugs, just by healthier lifestyles, better eating, better diet, better exercise, and the like. And if you were able to do both those things, it's estimated that you could actually reduce your future cardiovascular risk by upwards of 85 to 90%. This is very provocative because it does suggest that arterial disease causing heart attacks and strokes may actually be a preventable disease if we were able to address it and its risk factors early enough and modify those risk factors driving the disease. So normally when you go to the doctor, they tell you it's never too late to do something. My message today is that it's never too early to do something. 
This is something that you need to do well before uh, you get into trouble from your clinical problems. Now, I talked about investing in your arteries in my title, and actually, the analogies between health management and wealth management are really interesting. Einstein, uh, he got it. He said that, in his view, the most powerful force in the universe was not some physical problem. It was compound interest, because he understood the benefit from early investment from future gain. Just imagine if you started to save for your retirement when you were 64. You wouldn't do very well financially in terms of your future. And yet, that's precisely how most of us target our cardiovascular risk factors. And most doctors have managed cardiovascular risk factors until recently. Investing in your arteries in the same way as we invest in our health, in, in our wealth, is going to be the new factor that we have to communicate to the public, our colleagues, and our healthcare providers. So, we now understand this disease in a very different way. We know that there are huge potential benefits from doing something early and not waiting for clinical problems and the disease to be largely irreversible. So the challenge to us now is to communicate that information to our colleagues and most importantly to the public. But it's only by empowering the public to take control of their own cardiovascular risk future that we're going to actually sustain and get substantial reductions in population burden of cardiovascular disease. Now, I would say that doctors have been pretty terrible at communicating that concept of cardiovascular risk, and in particular, the benefit that you might get from doing something about it. We tend to lecture our patients using rather unintelligible metrics. We talk about percentage risk, uh, short-term gain, and people really don't understand the opportunities that they have from doing something about it. So a few years ago, we decided to move away from this sort of scoring to a new way of assessing cardiovascular risk that I'm going to show you. This is what your doctor looks at when they decide whether to give you a statin or a blood pressure medication. We use a measurement of your risk of having a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. It's the absolute risk of having an event over 10 years that drives our advice to you for treatment and we have tables like this, men and women, here's blood pressure, here's cholesterol, here's your age, that tell you whether your risk is low, medium, or high, and guides that therapy. You can see that if you're a woman and you're 50-odd, you can have a hugely elevated cholesterol of 8, a very high blood pressure of 180, and still have a very low 10-year cardiovascular risk. That's because you're female and you get your disease later and because you're young. On the other hand, if you look out here at the men who are 60 and over, people like me, it doesn't really matter what your cholesterol is or what you do about smoking and your blood pressure. You're at high 10-year risk simply because you're male and because you're older. So what this type of calculation does is to disenfranchise young people and particularly women from getting effective lifetime cardiovascular risk reduction advice. And that's what we've been doing for many years in pretty well every one of the cardiac guidelines. Now, how many people are there out there in the population who have a low short-term 10-year risk and yet are at high lifetime risk of having a cardiovascular event? Well, MAMA in the United States estimated 
that more than half the adult population in the United States, that's more than 85 million people, had a low 10-year risk of less than 10%, would be well below the threshold that we would advise you to take a statin or blood pressure medication, and yet still had a lifetime risk of a cardiovascular event of greater than 40%. Many of you in the audience will fall into this category. So we decided that we weren't communicating the risk and, most importantly, the opportunity adequately to our public. So a few years ago, uh, we, had an, uh, we have a group called the Joint British Societies of the Cardiovascular Guideline Developers who meet together, and we developed a calculator that didn't just tell you about your 10-year risk, but told you some measurements that might be more intuitive and easier for you to understand. For example, we calculated the heart age of our patients using the classic cardiovascular risk factor profile. So this is a 45-year-old woman who happens to have a high blood pressure, quite high cholesterol, and a high weight. And her real heart age is 54 years, substantially above her chronological age. Now, people don't like to have or be told that they have a heart that's older than their real age. And it's quite motivational when you're told that. And what people tend to do in their first question is to say to the doctor, what is it that I can do to get my heart age back down to my real age? This is another metric that I think is interesting. This tells you when you can expect to have your first cardiovascular event, your stroke or your heart attack, with your current risk factor profile. And for this lady, it was 66 years of age. Now, the really neat thing about this calculator is that we can then, in front of the patient, look at the impact of interventions and what they do to heart age and delaying heart attacks and stroke. We can demonstrate that by lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, losing weight, quitting smoking, you'll gain a substantial amount of healthy life expectancy and actually get your heart age back down to your real age. So this has been really exciting as a process because it changes completely the interaction that we have as physicians with our patients. It's a personalized approach that tells you about risk, but at the same time about opportunity that you have to do something about it. It empowers lifestyle because you don't have to do very much if you do it early and you sustain it, as I already showed you, to get that benefit. And it's not just a statin conversation, which is what you all think doctors are trying to do and selling you drugs that you might not need. So it's really been a game changer in which the way in which we can start to talk to our patients and the public about their cardiovascular risk. And actually, we've developed an app from this calc calculator, which you can go and download, which will allow you to calculate your heart age and when you can expect to have your first cardiovascular event and see what you can do to do something about it. Now, does this make any difference? That's obviously the key question. And in Spain, they did a very nice study in primary care, in general practice, where they looked at 3,000 people who were average age of 46. These are really quite young people where just the opportunity to do something. And they had a conversation with them about their 10-year risk, this framing risk I showed you. They had a conversation with them about their heart age. And a number of the group of people just came in and attended to their clinical problem without a conversation about their cardiovascular risk. Look what happened to the whole range of cardiovascular risk factors over the next 12 months. The individuals who were told their heart age 
and what they can do, made a substantial reduction in all of these cardiovascular risk factors over the next 12 months. It really does work. If the public understands the issue and their opportunity, they're much more likely to do something about it. Now, as a medical community, we've sort of rather dismissed the public's interest in doing something about it and felt that it was really difficult to communicate this and people didn't care about their cardiovascular risk. But I think we've been very wrong. There's an intense interest in the public now about understanding their risk of future disease and what they can do to prevent it. So this, you'll remember, is Andy Capp. The doctor says the best thing you can do is to give up smoking, drinking, and fried food. And Andy Capp says, what's the second best thing I can do, doctor? It isn't like that at all. We now know that the public are extremely interested in their cardiovascular risk if it's presented in a way that they can understand. What we did was to take the uh, heart age calculator that we developed and we put it on NHS Choices, which is the NHS website that quite a lot of people go on to and, and surf. And we did it without any advertising. And remarkably, over a 12 or so month period, more than 2 million people went online to calculate their heart age. And almost a million of them got through the several screens that allowed them to get to the answer. Really um, an incredible response without much promotion to a tool that allowed them to do something about estimating their future risk. And this has been very exciting and something we're developing further. So I'm just going to digress for a moment and say that we're pulling together then a very different picture about a disease that we really have to work much harder to try to prevent. It's a disease of unhealthy living and risk factors that drives accelerated aging and some very important clinical consequences that actually probably relate to the same profile of adverse risk factors and bad behaviors. We have cholesterol, we have overweight, stress, blood pressure, smoking, driving inflammation. Inflammation we now recognize underpins accelerated aging. And if you go in down this bad pathway, you're more likely to get diabetes, even cancer, cardiovascular disease, and I'm going to show you dementia as well. And we've begun to target not just the risk factors that we've been talking about so far, but actually begun in medicine to research whether we can target directly that inflammatory process. Just last year, a really exciting trial was published in The Lancet where they looked at an anti-inflammatory drug given to people with heart disease and remarkably showed that that drug also reduced the incidence of heart attacks and cardiovascular events. But what was really intriguing was that unexpectedly, the incidence of new cancers like lung cancer was also significantly reduced. These risk factors in this common process of inflammation underpins many of the diseases that we would like to prevent in later life. Now, it's not just drugs that we can use to target that inflammation. We can try to reduce chronic inflammation that many of us have and see whether or not that also produces clinical benefit. The commonest inflammatory disease that we all have is gum disease or periodontitis. Upwards of 40% of the UK population has some form of gum disease with bleeding gums when you brush your teeth. And it's really severe in almost 5 to 10% of the population. Now that chronic gum disease is related to chronic high levels of inflammation and has been related to a whole range of diseases including cardiovascular disease and including diabetes. 
What we did just recently is a clinical trial where we randomized people to very aggressive treatment of that gum disease, really aiming to get their teeth in much better order, and another group who, get con who got conventional dental treatment. And we looked at what happened to their arteries and to their diabetes, these were people with diabetes, over the next 12 months. And I'll just show you this to make the point that the HbA1c is a measure of diabetes control. You want it to be low. These are the people who got the conventional treatment. These are the people who got the active treatment, which treated their gums more effectively. This is their blood sugar. This is their arterial function. And this is their kidney function. Within 12 months, we were able to show that just by removing that natural source of chronic inflammation that many of us have, we could have a really impressive benefit in terms of the manifestations of diseases like diabetes. Now, I've talked about diabetes, I've talked about cancer, cardiovascular disease, but it also turns out that what's good for the heart is also good for the brain. And the same cardiovascular risk factors that we're talking about might actually be very important in determining our future risk of cognitive decline and dementia. This comes from a United States insurance cohort, 8,000 people aged 43 to, uh, 40 to 43, looking at their risk of getting dementia in later life from their midlife cardiovascular risk factors. Notice the risk factors that underpinned dementia, high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, and smoking. And notice, just like heart disease, if you've got one, it's bad. If you've got two, it's worse. And when you've got three and four, it's even worse. It's the same cardiovascular risk factors that are underpinning cognitive decline and dementia in many, many people. Now, remarkably, we can also show that it isn't those risk factor levels when you're 50 and 60 that makes the difference. It's the risk factors that you have early on in your life, just as I showed you for cardiovascular disease. This is a recent paper, again, from that young FID study, where they looked at the number of risk factors in the young patients. In blue, they had none, one, uh, in orange, one, and here, uh, two risk factors in early life, again, as teenagers. And this is their cognitive function, their brain function, when they were middle-aged. Notice the steep relationship between the level of risk factors they had in childhood and cognitive function in middle age. Notice something also very important. This is the number of risk factors that they actually had at the time of evaluation. It didn't really make any difference whether they had zero, one, or two risk factors in their middle age years. It was all driven by what their risk factor profile was 20 and 30 years earlier. Again, evidence that it's investing in our future health that we need to consider, not just managing the risk factor profile when we get into trouble. So we're in the middle of taking our heart age concept and developing a new tool, developing a tool that will allow you to calculate your rate of cognitive decline and what we call your brain age based on those same cardiovascular risk profiles. We're working on this uh, uh, nationally and internationally, and it's going to form the basis of a national initiative for preventable dementia based on the idea that cardiovascular risk factor reduction will benefit not just the heart, but also the brain. There's some evidence to support this already. This is a trial from Finland, where they went out and took a bunch of people who had multiple cardiovascular risk factors, reduced those risk factors, and showed that within uh, two years, 
there's a substantial improvement in their cognitive function as a result of doing something about their cholesterol, blood pressure, smoking, exercise behavior, and the like. So really very exciting. So now, we've got the idea that we can do something early to prevent future disease, and there's a critical time when we have to do it before the disease develops. The next question we have to ask is how early should we be starting prevention? And we mustn't let our young people get into trouble and have a poor start in life. If I was the health minister and I wanted to do something about the public's health in the next generation, I would be targeting smoking and I would be targeting overweight in the young because these are two, probably the most important two drivers of future cardiovascular health and chronic disease that's going to develop in the population. We all know about smoking, and we've got wonderful evidence to suggest that this is just like the risk factors I've been talking about. If you stop early, you gain much more benefit than if you stop later. This is data from a quarter of a million people in the United States looking at the hazards of smoking and the benefits of stopping and quitting. If you smoke from 30 to 40 years of age, on average, you lose about a decade of life expectancy. It's an astonishing statistic. You die 10 years earlier on average than you need to if you were a non-smoker. If you're able to quit smoking when you're 35 to 44, the good news is you regain about 90% of that lost decade. However, the later you stop smoking here, 45 to 54 or 55 to 64, the less of that lost decade you can regain back. So this is very nice evidence to suggest that doing something early is really important in terms of removal of exposure to a cardiovascular risk factor. Obesity is going to be exactly the same. These are astonishing data that were published a month or so ago in the New England Journal of Medicine, where they looked at uh, models of, of the population's weight in childhood and into adulthood. And they looked at what was going to happen to the current generation in terms of their weight at the age of two and their weight 15 years later. You can see that if you were fat as a child at the age of two, of which there were many, you had about a 90% chance of being fat at the age of 15. If you were slim as a baby, you still had a high chance of being fat later on, but it was much, much lower. And the fatter you were as a child, the more likely you were to be a fat adolescent and in future a fat adult. This is a problem that begins early. It's set in early life and very hard, as we all know, to reverse when we get out here. Now, this is really important because just as I showed you for smoking, there is a clear relationship between the risk factor and dying prematurely from cardiovascular disease. And we're beginning to get evidence that it's exactly the same for childhood and adolescent obesity. This is a recent study that showed that if you're overweight during adolescence, there's a substantially increased risk of getting a cardiovascular event in later life, in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now, the prize is very big because we also have information to suggest that if we are able successfully to take that overweight adolescent or child and return them to a normal weight, their future cardiovascular risk returns back to the same as if they'd always been slim. This is a reversible problem if we're able to tackle it early on in life, a big challenge for prevention strategies. So 
we need to be thinking about this and targeting the young in a much more aggressive way than we've done up to now. And it's very cost-effective to do this, and this is now becoming a real issue, not just for doctors, but for the healthcare providers, the politicians, and indeed you and your families. Look how cheap it is in terms of saving for future healthcare if we do something very simple uh, and apply it to young people. Here, the projected costs of spending $1, what you would save if you tax sugar-sweetened beverages, change the diet at schools, eliminate tax breaks for junk food, 30% gain in your investment from your $1 in the United States from doing those simple measures and applying them to children. It isn't really as simple as we've thought and just targeting the kid and the kid's eating habit. Many of you will recognize uh, this celebrity chef. This is Jamie Oliver. A few years ago, he got fed up with the medical profession. He said doing nothing about uh, healthy diets and doing some, nothing about childhood obesity. And he created a, a Jamie Oliver healthy meal, which he offered to schools. And here you see the kid eating Jamie's meal. He doesn't look terribly impressed with the meal. But the problem wasn't so much that the child didn't like the meal. This was the problem. These are the mothers at break time, not the healthiest specimens you see here, taking orders for Big Macs from, for their kids, which they would then pass in the break time after lunch back to their children. I'm showing you this to make a serious point. It's not good enough to target the patient in front of you or the child you want to prevent. This is a societal problem we have to deal with. And we have to figure out who is responsible for our health. Is it the child? Is it the parents? Is it the government? And what's the role of the medical profession in targeting these very bad behaviors that are going to, we know are going to lead to future disease? So a few years ago, we did a survey and uh, asked the public who was responsible for all these fat children that were out there in the public. And this is what they said. Not unreasonably, quite a lot of people blamed the parents. Also not unreasonably, that some of them blamed the food and drink manufacturers. Some of them blamed the child. And indeed, some of them blamed the government for having all these fat children. That was interesting, but the really interesting part of this survey came when we asked the same people who was responsible for doing something about it. And this is what they said. Most of them said it was the government's problem to deal with it, it wasn't the parents, the food and drink manufacturers, or the child's. This is really important. Unless we can get the message across that health is a valued commodity and that you have to adopt your own uh, responsibility for dealing with your future cardiovascular health and other, indeed, other healths, we're never going to crack this problem of a bad uh, lifestyle leading to important disease. So I've been talking about strategies to target the whole population and reduce the burden of disease in the population. But clearly, medicine is also moving very rapidly towards trying to be more precise at identifying who in the population is at particularly high risk of particular diseases. And we call that personalized medicine. And what we're trying to do is to do better in terms of our prediction and indeed targeting that treatment to the disease that you're most at risk from. So identifying individuals who are on accelerated trajectories for cardiovascular disease is really, really important. So genetics is going to change the world in terms of our ability to predict risk in the next few years. 
we already know that there are certain groups of people in the population, some of whom don't know about it, but others who have a family history of a particular disease, who are at particularly high risk of developing certain diseases. And one of the classic ones is a disease called familial hypercholesterolemia, in which the cholesterol level is very high genetically from childhood, and it's often associated with a premature cardiovascular event in the family. We know that when we look at the arteries of those children who've got the gene for this condition, that we can already see damage to their arteries in the first decade of life. So our current strategy is to now try to find those people and target them with specific therapies like statins, not when they've already got a clinical problem, but our guidelines now suggest that we start statins in these high-risk people from 8 to 10 years of age. Other diseases like diabetes, high blood pressure, and kidney disease are also at particularly high risk of developing future cardiovascular disease. And this personalized medicine is going to evolve very rapidly in the next few years. Quite clearly, one size does not fit all in terms of risk prediction. We're going to develop better genetic profiling. We're going to have these uh, ability to image our arteries in a non-invasive and beautiful way like you see here with CT scanning and looking at various blood markers and other markers of our health that will give us a clue at who's at risk, particularly from which particular disease and what we ought to do for their treatment. And it's here that the digital revolution that's going on all around us is really going to make a difference. You can use digital technology as far as your imagination can stretch. We now have monitoring devices for almost everything, we have the ability to uh, follow patients chronically, implant chips to monitor different aspects of their physiology and their uh, uh, situations. And we can start to bring all of this digital revolution and genetics together to really target prevention, prediction, better management, better diagnosis, and better disease care. So this is really where... Um, society is going to go in the next few years and very excitingly the opportunities are becoming available to all of us. This is a complicated slide but I just wanted to show you uh, because I think this is a fabulous study from Israel where they looked at a whole range of different aspects of potential pr um, personalized medicine. They uh, did questionnaires in the public for their eating habits, lifestyle, they measured their waist circumference and other measurements, they did blood tests, for various markers of future disease. And interesting, they also started to look at the gut micro microbes, our bacteria in our bowel, which are emerging as very important regulators of many diseases. And they put all of these different measures together and developed a predictive score using artificial intelligence to predict what would happen when you ate certain foods in terms of your blood sugar control and your weight gain. And when they then tested that model, in real-life situations, the intervention predicted and the intervention measure was almost perfectly aligned. In other words, by using these measurements, they could really begin to predict who was going to respond in what way to eating and to different behaviours. Astonishingly powerful ways that we're going to use in the future to anticipate and predict risk. Now, this is uh, something that is not going to be only a detailed assessment like you've seen in that last slide but simple data that you're all carrying around on your, on your phones are going to really tell us something about cardiovascular risk and disease uh, burden. This was a recent paper that came out in Summer in Nature, which I show you because it just uses smartphone data 
to look at your activity levels. They recorded more than 68 million data points monitoring the activity of people in different countries around the world in almost three quarters of a million people just by interrogating their phones. They're able to develop a profile of activity in different countries around the world, see how variable people are in some countries, how predictable and how tight the behavior is in other countries. And these data that we can start to collect, and indeed is being collected on many of us as we're sitting here, really might inform, if we use it constructively, a better way of predicting our future medical outcomes. So I like this quote. Um, Kim said here, medicine is going to become an information science. In 10 years or so, we may have billions of data points on each individual. And the real challenge will be to develop information technology that can reduce that to real hypotheses about that individual. This is where the information technology uh, revolution is really going to translate to better prediction and better management of future disease. So I'm going to end by saying that I think this revolution is going to require us to rethink what we believe medicine is all about and the way in which we, as doctors, should be targeting uh, uh, healthcare and uh, patient care as well. We're all in the business of disease management. This is the Victorian approach to medicine. We sit in our offices and wait for the diseased populations to come to us with their problems. That's no longer the future of medicine. If we just sit around and wait for disease to develop before we do something about it, we'll end up like Kodak. Kodak, as you all remember, you, I'm sure you bought these films when you were younger. Kodak went bankrupt in 2012 after 131 years of continuous production of film because they failed to anticipate a change in technology. And they're only now getting back into business. We in the medical profession have to understand what's happening in health and the changing role of the doctor is something we're really all going to have to address, not just within the medical profession, but also when we start to think about healthcare, the National Health Service, and the like. It's no longer about illness management, it's about wellness maintenance. Early management, we've been talking about monitoring with digital systems, better ways of predicting events and maintaining health is going to be the key area that we're going to work in. And the idea is to stop these dips from wellness into illness occurring at different stages in our life and gain a lot in terms of healthy aging. Our politicians really get that. They've been forced to get it because of the economics of all of this. This is Simon Stevens, the chief executive of the NHS, speaking a couple of years ago about the UK and its future. First, as a nation, it's time to get our act together on prevention. We've got a choice. Condemn our children to a rising tide of avoidable diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or cancer. Burden the taxpayers with an extra NHS bill, far exceeding the extra $8 billion by 2020. Or do something about it. Notice, as families, as the health service, as the government, and as industry. This combined approach that we're going to have to take. It's a no-brainer, he said. Pull out all the stops on prevention or face the music. I think this is really important that we now have politicians beginning to become engaged with our healthcare providers to start to deliver this. And we're beginning to see this debated almost daily in our newspapers and in our public debate. Taxing sugar is a topical subject, as you all know. We're trying to learn from our 
management of smoking that has been so successful and convert that to managing obesity. This is not a new idea. This is Adam Smith in the 18th century who wrote, sugar, rum, tobacco are commodities which are nowhere necessaries of life. And yet, even in the 18th century, were becoming objects of almost universal consumption. He thought they were extremely proper subjects of taxation. And I think we're going to get there now in the next few years. Politicians have shied away from this. Not many people will vote for politicians who want to increase their taxes. But actually, the public get it now and are quite happy with the idea of taxing sugary drinks and unhealthy products, providing that money goes back into the healthcare system and the healthcare budget. This was a study from the United States in which they estimated what you would get by just putting a small tax on sugary drinks. Look at the billions of dollars you could raise in terms of taxation. And when they went to the New York population, probably the most cynical population in the world, almost three quarters of them thought this was a good idea, raising taxes, providing it fed back to better health care. Studies are beginning to appear that it works. This is a study from Mexico who've looked at uh, taxing sugary uh, drinks. And you see here the impact of taxing those drinks on consumption of sugar, uh, high sugar drinks. It works. People start to consume less when you tax the drinks. And most importantly, low socioeconomic status was a predictor of reduction in drink consumption. So it's the poor people who have the highest cardiovascular disease who are going to have the, in whom the biggest impact will be felt by these sort of fiscal measures for managing uh, a cardiovascular risk from changing consumption of sugary drinks. So I'd like to leave you with a final thought about what medicine is all, around, all about. Ernest Winder, I think, got it right when he said, it should be the function of medicine to have people die young as late as possible. <laughs> You're not going to be able to manage that by treating heart failure, rehabilitating a stroke, or dealing with the damaging consequences of a heart attack. We've got to move our attention upstream if we're going to achieve what Ernest Winder suggests are the goals of medicine. We've got an awful long way to go, <clears throat> but I think we're getting there in terms of our understanding of the opportunities and the way which we, as a society together, can actually deal with this problem. We've got to focus much more on lifetime management of risk, just as your savings, and we talked about that. We've got to engage the medical community in this, but also healthcare providers, politicians, and most importantly, the public, if we're going to promote the sort of societal change that we need to make a big difference. We need to communicate better, especially with young people, using the sort of risk tools that we're trying to develop in uh, guidelines like the Joint British Society guidelines, which show you not just your risk, but at the same time show you the benefits from early investment. And I think new technology is going to really empower us not only to identify people at particularly high risk, but also to follow the impact of all of these different treatments to, be to deliver much better personalized medicine in the next few years. Very exciting times in terms of the opportunity to not only help our patients in front of us, but also to deliver a real impact on the population if we get this right. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>